You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. That opportunity to decarbonize these sectors that really are pretty hard to electrify, that really attracted me. And it's that energy density challenge that you mentioned that I think creates the opportunity for green hydrogen in particular. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School. And I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. Today's episode is the third in our series on hard to abate sectors, those sectors with some of the most significant greenhouse gas emissions and where decarbonization depends on scalable, cost-competitive technologies. In this episode, I'm talking with Jacob Sussman, CEO and co-founder of Ambient Fuels, a developer of green hydrogen projects. We'll learn about the role that green hydrogen can play in decarbonizing hard-to-abate industries. I'll ask Jacob about Ambient's role in project and infrastructure development for green hydrogen and how green hydrogen differs from other types of hydrogen known as gray and blue. I'll also ask him about different industry applications of green hydrogen and get his sense of which ones are particularly promising. As always, I'll ask him for career advice at the end of the episode. Here's my interview with Jacob Sussman from Ambient Fuels. Thank you so much for joining us here on Climate Rising. Super to be here with you today, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, why don't we just begin by asking you to provide a short introduction, where you are, your current role at Ambient. Sounds great. Well, I'm coming to you today from Brooklyn, New York. I'm the CEO of Ambient Fuels. We are a green hydrogen developer, and we've got a lot of folks around the country, but primarily here in New York. And then also in Houston, we have a pretty significant presence as well. Great. And you've been in the energy industry for quite a while. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of how you got to Ambient and what was your journey? Some of it's luck. I happened to show up in Spain in 1999, right at a time where that country's energy sector was deregulating and joined a big American company there called AES, where I kind of learned the trade of independent power development. And thankfully, had a, a real forward-thinking boss at the time who said, you know, this uh, wind energy stuff looks like it might be for real. Jake, why don't you go give that a try and see if you can figure out a business for us? That's about almost 25 years ago and with a couple of stops in the middle at Goldman Sachs and then building my own wind development company called Own Energy, which we then sold to EDF Renewables, part of a big French energy conglomerate and then started Ambient Fuels about two and a half years ago. So Jacob, given you've worked in many different areas of renewables, wind and solar you mentioned, what led you to green hydrogen and why now? Beginning my career in gas-fired development and then moving on to wind development and solar development, a little bit of storage, gave me the foundation in product development overall, what makes a good DevCo and how to deploy capital in an efficient way into a DevCo. As we had seen in those prior iterations, there tend to be waves of development around a technology or around a set of regulations that are emerging or some other market dynamics that are kind of coming to bear. There is sort of a formula that goes through these waves. And I had kind of learned that formula in having built a wind devco of my own. 
And then just got really fortunate that a friend turned me on to electrolyzers and green hydrogen and the fact that cost curve was coming down, that there were places around the world where legislation and incentives were coming out, and that some of that playbook, some of that model uh, that I had learned in those earlier industries really could fairly seamlessly be applied to these new emerging trends around green hydrogen. Most important of all, however, because I could have gone back and built another wind devco or another solar devco. What was really interesting to me was, frankly, tackling a hard challenge. There's a third of the CO2 that we need to abate that we cannot do through electrification, right? And these are industries like refining and fertilizer and shipping and aviation and long-haul trucking, cement, steel, all these industries, there's certain parts of their process or their whole process overall, you just can't decarbonize it with wind and solar. And I said, well, let's go find the, the molecule that fits the playbook, that enables these sectors to decarbonize, take on a really hard challenge and see if we can build a great devco in the green hydrogen sector. And that's what we're doing at Ambient Fuels. So let's talk a little bit, for those who aren't familiar with this infrastructure developer role, one might imagine, okay, there's people who operate these plants and there's the equipment developers and there's banks and others who are financing them. What does an infrastructure developer or project developer do? It is probably more art than science, but it really amounts to putting the pieces together of a project on the desktop or on paper, and most importantly, in a set of contracts that then lend themselves to a non-recourse project financing so that one can then go on and build and operate that infrastructure asset. So this could apply to anything from a toll road to a port, but as I mentioned, all those different types of power and then other, other energy projects as well. The types of tasks you'd be taking on would be figuring out the feasibility of a particular project or securing the rights to the land where you're going to build the project. Maybe you need a permit. Maybe you need to connect it to the electrical grid. You almost always need a fuel source or a, a renewable resource. And then you get into some of the more commercial aspects. So you'll eventually have to find an anchor tenant, an off-taker. You'll sign some engineering, procurement, and construction contracts. Uh, and then you'll go finance it and build it. Let me unpack a few of the pieces that are jargon to some. Just now you mentioned off-taker. Can you just lay that out for us? What does that mean? Yes. So what almost all infrastructure projects rely on in order to achieve success is a fixed revenue stream for some many years, preferably, that will then lead to a certain amount of capital being comfortable enough that revenues will come into that project that they will then provide the capital to go build it. So the off-taker, or in most industries, you would call them the customer, is really the linchpin to a lot of these contracts. In my wind farm development days, that was in the early days, most typically a utility who would sign up and say, I'll take 100% of your output for 20 years, deliver it at the plant gate at a fixed price, and then I could take that contract straight to the bank and go start building. Or more recently in the hydrogen sector, it could be, say, an ammonia producer or a refinery or any number of different industrial clients who use hydrogen in their process. Again, we would sign up to a long-term contract that really gives us a license to go build. Got it. So it's a pre-commitment from a buyer that says, if you build it, I will come. That's right. And I'm going to sign on the bottom line to say that that's the case at a fixed price for a period of time. That de-risks the project. 
reduces the risk to the developer. Therefore, they can get better financing or maybe any financing at all. That's very well said and not to geek out too much, but some other key aspects of it would be obviously the credit profile of that buyer, some of the contractual terms. In other words, what binds them to you know necessarily show up and take the quantity at the price that they promised and any number of thorny contractual issues. That is often the hardest part about getting a project off the ground. In my opinion, also often the most enjoyable because there's a lot of ideating and brainstorming um, and the occasional fun business dinner with said customers. Got it. So we've been talking about green hydrogen, and I think it's probably useful at this point to just make sure we define our terms here. So, I mean, hydrogen is an element, so we all know hydrogen is actually hydrogen, but it's called green hydrogen, gray hydrogen, and blue hydrogen, different flavors of hydrogen. Can you just walk us through the difference between those three? Sure can. Another way to name it is electrolytic hydrogen or hydrogen made from an electrolyzer, which is a piece of equipment that basically separates water into hydrogen and oxygen. But that process is extremely energy intensive. However, if you use renewable energy, carbon-free energy, then you have created green hydrogen or carbon-free hydrogen. That is basically the core of our work as green hydrogen developers. We seek out as we were talking about earlier, certainly the customer, but also the source of the renewable power that will be put through that electrolyzer to then separate that water. So that's, in a way, your most important raw material or, or input, I should say, is the renewable because the, it's not hard to find air. That's absolutely right. And I'll add to that, the cost of hydrogen, one could argue, is easily three quarters dependent on how well you buy your renewable power. A lot of times in these industries, we get fixated on the capex of the actual equipment, which is still incredibly important for a variety of reasons. And I don't mean to downplay that, but so much of it here is riding on how you buy your power. Great. So this is all about green hydrogen and just help contrast this with the other forms, if you would. So the most common way of making hydrogen today in the economy is referred to as gray hydrogen through a steam methane reformer. These are typically owned by large industrial gases companies, although sometimes they are also owned by the actual user of the hydrogen kind of behind the fence, as they say. The primary input there is, as the name suggests, methane uh, or natural gas. So you can imagine the amount of CO2 emissions that comes off of generating this form of hydrogen with methane, which is why green hydrogen is such a wonderful solution for industries like ammonia and refining from a decarbonization perspective. And then blue hydrogen, the last of our colors. So blue hydrogen is a competitor to us because it is a decarbonizing solution in that you go through that same SMR driven process that we use to make gray hydrogen. But at the end of that process, you capture the CO2 that comes out of it and you store it in the ground or maybe you'll do something else with the CO2 but in so doing, you haven't eliminated the amount of CO2 that gets generated, but you've reduced it a significant amount. Got it. And is it fair to say that gray hydrogen is the most mature, blue hydrogen second most, and then green hydrogen's earliest? I think that's fair. There's some nuance, though, to it, Mike. First part I would mention on blue hydrogen is, you know, you are talking about storing massive amounts of CO2 underground. That is a project development exercise in and of itself. It requires establishing a pretty major cavern 
first capturing the CO2, then moving it into that cavern, then making sure that the CO2 stays down in that cavern and kind of continuously proving that it's not leaking out. There's some significant challenge to both developing the blue hydrogen projects and some science and some tech to confirming that the CO2 is truly being captured. The other thing I would say is that, yes, I guess the green hydrogen, the electrolyzer technology is the newest in question. However, it's been around for 30, 40 years, fairly proven as well. We're kind of at that point in the industry where it's less about establishing that a certain type of technology works or doesn't work. It's more about driving the cost down and innovating as far as the amount of energy that's required in order to make those electrolyzers go. And can you say a few words about what that technology race looks like right now to reduce the cost of electrolyzers? There's certainly some rare earth minerals like platinum, for example, that go into these electrolyzers and that's not cheap or easy to get to. So there is a pretty major effort underway to try to reduce some of those materials that are required or, or use different materials. Probably the most significant effort though It's just overall around system efficiency, which particularly relates to how much electricity do I have to put into the electrolyzer in order to get a certain amount of green hydrogen out? Because as I mentioned earlier, it's the primary cost driver for the ultimate cost of the green hydrogen. Got it. Let's talk about the market for green hydrogen. Now, in some areas, I'm sure its market is the same as gray hydrogen. You're just looking to substitute a one-for-one basis. And perhaps in others, it's replacing other fuels or other energy applications. So let's talk through a couple of them. I know one of the big ones is ammonia, which uses right now a lot of gray hydrogen. Is that a big market for green hydrogen as well? It very much is. And I think maybe before we go into specific segments, it's useful to talk about the current case versus the future case. What I mean by that is that the current industries that use gray hydrogen, predominantly the petrochemical complex and fertilizer production pale in comparison to the amount of potential new industries that can kind of adopt hydrogen overall. When you think about what shipping or aviation or long-haul transport, steel, cement, and all the different industrial uses where you can use hydrogen to create heat instead of methane, which is the most common, these are all brand new sectors where hydrogen has little or no penetration today. Coming back to your question, yes, ammonia is a major area where there's a kind of a conversion opportunity. In fact, we're working with a couple of ammonia producers presently who would like to replace their supply of gray hydrogen with a certain amount of green uh, because either they are required to in their home jurisdiction or um, they see a market opportunity where they can charge more for the product because it's the clean and green kind. But again, I would say that the ammonia industry, while very important, is just one piece of these new industries that we believe will emerge and begin to use hydrogen very soon. Great. Yeah. And let's definitely talk through both of them. Ammonia itself perhaps allows us to talk about both of them because one of the big uses of ammonia is in fertilizers. So they're swapping it one for one. But then also shipping is a potential market for ammonia where that's not currently used as a shipping fuel at a large scale. It's a great point. And I want to make sure within that we also address all of the contributing factors that enable some of these transitions to occur. So in the instance of shipping, for example, there are a few different pathways that people are considering for decarbonization and moving away from the heavy bunker fuel that most ships use today 
there've already been a number of ships that have been either converted or, or new ships that have been ordered to run on liquefied natural gas. So that's one pathway. Another pathway that many are considering includes methanol. That's a chemical that you can make with green hydrogen as well. And then there's, as you mentioned, this concept of shipping via green ammonia. And I think there are factors that we have to look at, like where do I get the fueling? Can I use my existing ships or do I have to order new ships? And also the truing up of the global certification programs and restrictions and regulations. Am I able to call this green ammonia in one market versus in another market? It might not be considered as such. And then lastly, and maybe most importantly, are the safety considerations that you know certain shipping fuels, at least today, are deemed to be more challenging than others in terms of using them for shipping. Yeah, and ammonia in particular, it being toxic, the risk of leakages that create safety hazards is, is not trivial. You said it. Yeah. So what about on the fertilizer side there? Is there a willingness to pay for green hydrogen among fertilizer producers or ultimately their customers? This gets to a concept that I think is worth establishing of regulatory demand versus voluntary demand. Okay? Great. The analogy in the states and the renewable power industry was and the run-up of wind and solar power, we had both a cost-reducing incentive. In those industries, there was a production tax credit or an investment tax credit, but we also had a demand driver in the form of a renewables portfolio standard in something like 30 states. And you really need both of those in order to kind of get these industries to their full potential. So far in the ammonia sector and in green hydrogen overall, we have half of that story in the form of the Inflation Reduction Act and its Section 45V, which establishes a tax credit for low carbon hydrogen, which is great. We're all thrilled about that. We do not, however, have an equivalent yet in the US to that renewables portfolio standard that I mentioned. There are a couple of states that have a clean fuel standard, which is helpful. We need a lot more. So there's a long answer to your question, Mike, but yeah. in other jurisdictions, like in Europe, for example, there are regulations. There is that top-down demand driver that says, thou shalt run your ships or your airplanes with green fuels by some date certain. And that sends very large companies running around with you know a fair amount of uh, expediency going out and trying to figure out how to meet those mandates and targets. So we love that regulatory demand. We need more of it here in this country as well. Got it. So let's talk about some of the other applications. Aviation is another one where there's exploration on using green hydrogen. Can you talk about that a bit? For sure. And here's where I can introduce now the second concept of voluntary demand as well. Because anyone who's you know flown on some of the better airlines these days will have seen at least one video that says, we're going to get all of our fuel from uh, sustainable sources by some date certain. We love that. I mean, I, I love the concept of, of these airlines following through on those commitments. A lot of times they're a little ways out, 20, 30 or beyond. So we need to tighten those up. We need to bring those in. But it's still an example of voluntary demand of good corporate citizens saying we're going to green up our fuel supply. And, and the airlines uh, have really been out in the lead on this. And we applaud uh, the efforts that many of them are, are making. Particularly the European airlines now have some of that regulatory demand combined with the voluntary bit. It's not just to protect their brand and live up to their sustainability commitments that they've made to their stakeholders, but it's also because European governments have said, thou shalt again. 
And it's probably a good moment to just pause and say, well, what happened to the electrify everything movement? And the reason why we're not seeing battery technologies in either shipping or aviation taking anywhere near the excitement that you see in road vehicles is because of the massive energy density benefit you get from hydrogen, which means you can store it in a more compact way and it's lighter than using battery applications for shipping or aviation. It's an excellent point. I'll I'll use it also to kind of highlight one of the key reasons that I decided to come into this sector in the first place. This was the hardest challenge that I could find in decarbonization because we've got a third of the CO2 emissions abatement that we need to achieve that we cannot get through electrification. You know, there's certain processes like flying planes or like sailing ships that really don't make sense to electrify. The energy density reason is probably the most important one. Think about the size of the battery you'd have to put in a ship's hold in order to power that ship for any reasonable distance versus what are often referred to as drop-in fuels that one could just replace the existing fuel source in many instances with these, these green fuels that we're talking about. It's that opportunity to decarbonize these sectors that really are, are pretty hard to electrify that really attracted me. And it's that energy density challenge that you mentioned that I think creates the opportunity for green hydrogen in particular. What about trucking? Now, trucking is sort of in between passenger vehicles and like shipping or aviation. And I know that there's some movement in the trucking industry to explore hydrogen as a fuel instead of batteries or maybe in addition to batteries. What's your take on that? Trucking is is one that has folks scratching their heads a little bit. And it's an overused term, but it comes down to a real chicken and egg challenge. You don't just need the fancy truck that runs on the hydrogen to fuel those vehicles. You also need um, the fueling network nationwide or even international for that matter. And you need whole new manufacturing lines to build the trucks in the first place to all come about. And you have a lot of folks sort of pointing in each other's direction saying, you go first. No, you go first. Build me the network and I'll retool all my trucks or vice versa. So we believe in it long term. We think as opposed to electrifying you know, long haul trucking, we think green hydrogen will be the way to go. But it's taking a while, and we think it will take quite a while longer. Yeah, a big difference about shipping and aviation is there's fewer fueling stations you need, and they're quite predictable because these are all predictable routes. That's right. Whereas with trucking, as you're noting, millions of miles. That's exactly right. And you know, I think there's also a fair amount of entrepreneurial sort of franchise types of models within the trucking industry, getting all of that coordinated so that everyone is moving to the same places where there's guaranteed fueling is yet another uh, complication. Right. So let's pivot away from these transportation sectors and talk a little bit about some other sectors in the industrial space, like steel and utilities. Those are also areas where one hears about green hydrogen. What's your take on those? Steel in particular is another one of these areas where there is regulatory demand coming out of primarily Europe. That does attract us. It is also a one of the more commoditized commodities. Yes, some companies and participants in the sector may be willing to pay a premium, but it's going to be a pretty modest premium. And the ones we've spoken to have said not a penny over, and then they'll give us a number that's pretty darn low and, and, and hard to hit. Yeah, I would say that the regulatory demand is useful there, but still not enough to overcome that commodity nature of that industry yet. In a bid that we put in recently to a steel company, we weren't terribly far off either. So that was that was pretty encouraging. 
we're seeing a number of industrial heat applications where there's some part of an industrial process that you really just can't electrify, where we're not only able to say, we can provide you a lot of value with a green hydrogen fuel source instead, but it may actually help some other aspect of that plant's operations. Maybe it enables part of that plant to not run as hot and so therefore not degrade in as short a period of time, or it might mean there's the excess oxygen that we produce can be used in, in other parts of that process. So there's some neat operational benefits that a lot of those industrial heat users can get by engaging with green hydrogen producers. And utilities? How about utility sector? So I think utilities is another one that we have our eye on for the medium and long term. A very high proportion of our power generation in the U.S. now is on natural gas, and hydrogen is obviously a gas. As more infrastructure is built up to deliver hydrogen, and as more R&D takes place in the kind of next generation of power generation equipment that can run on hydrogen, we think a lot of that gas plant may one day be replaced by green hydrogen. But today, the efficiencies aren't awesome. You know, if you think about going from wind or solar power through electrolysis and then basically back into power generation, power to power, it's not the world's most efficient process today. Yeah. With all that said, we're pretty encouraged by uh, some great discussions we're having with a few utilities right now who have said, you know, I have a feeling I'm going to be doing hydrogen on a large scale in a few years. Let me do a small commercial scale project with you guys. So if I were to compare them, probably more bullish sooner on utilities than we are on long haul transport or even steel, for example. Yeah, that was actually my next question is of all of these different applications, you've given some hints as to where you think the opportunities are most exciting or, or maybe riskiest or least exciting in the short run. What's your top few? If you give an outlook on where, where you think green hydrogen is going to be most widely adopted in the coming, I don't know, 10 years. Well, I went to some other business school, Mike, but in mine, they definitely taught us not to tell all your trade secrets. <laughs> I will say that the ones that you highlighted earlier on are some of the most exciting. So we're seeing a lot of activity around ammonia, shipping, aviation. And then, as I mentioned just now, a good bit in industrial heat and utilities. We think steel and, and long on trucking are a little bit further down the curve. Good. Let's dive in a little bit. Now, this is a very new area, given, although the technologies, as you mentioned, decades old, scaling the technology in a cost-competitive way, that's sort of the race that you're on right now, it sounds like. Where are you and where's the market in terms of the deals that have been signed, the construction that has begun? If you can give us a, a little bit of a lay of that land. We are installing tens of gigawatts of new renewables capacity in the U.S. every year, maybe hundreds, or certainly over 100 in certain years. And that compares with less than 300 megawatts of operating electrolyzers around the world today. In terms of the operational scale-up of this industry, I would say it's still in early stages. And when you talk to a lot of the manufacturers of the electrolyzer equipment, we're thankful that a lot of our partners have a gig or a couple of gigawatts worth of production capacity available now and are planning to scale that up five, six, seven fold in the short term. But there's also relatively modest amount of manufacturing capacity of the electrolyzers installed in the field today. There's another chicken and egg to some degree. 
you need a certain amount of projects to move forward because they have these offtake agreements that we were talking about earlier to motivate the manufacturers to build new manufacturing, right? We're starting to see those dynamics spool to life and pick up in pace. I would say the big scale up moment maybe starts around 2028 is my guess. You'll see us add hundred, couple hundred megawatts a year around the world for the next two, three, four years. Um, and then I'm expecting something that looks more like a spike towards the end of the decade. And in terms of the evolution of the tech or really the kind of cost down, that comes with the manufacturing scale up. That'll be a function both of the innovation that we do expect to see around materials, around efficiency, but it'll also just be a function of people building more manufacturing, getting better on the logistics and the delivery. The area where I'll fight my own corner as, as the developer here, we have some very sophisticated design engineering efforts underway in our company. And we think it's really critical to have a mix of people from backgrounds, both on the renewable side, because renewable power is really important. But more than half our people come from industrial gases, oil and gas, midstream, agricultural chemicals, these types of industries where the design engineering of the plant itself, down to every last technical piece with a heavy focus on safety, that's also where you get a lot of your innovation, is doing the design well uh, and then making that process repeatable. You mentioned earlier about Europe having some demand side pulls that are going to stimulate this market and both the US and Europe having some supply side policy instruments as well, which in the US, I imagine, is the Inflation Reduction Act. Is that what we're talking about here in the US context? Yes, on the supply side. Yeah. So I'm guessing as a result of those policies, we're going to see accelerated production here in the US and in Europe. First, is that right as far as like where the global growth will occur? And then where else should we be looking? So the whole world is watching the US right now around green hydrogen, particularly for the reason you mentioned of those supply side incentives that we have. I'm just back from a conference with a lot of green hydrogen and green ammonia players. This was in Atlanta. Uh, I would say less than half the attendees were based in the States. So there's a lot of focus on this market, again, for the supply side. But in terms of the demand, I would follow where you think those contracts are going to get signed. And to the degree that Europe is in the lead right now, maybe with California with a little bit of regulatory demand as well, those are the places that you're likely to see a lot of the end product land, you know, at least for the foreseeable future. But then I guess I would also caveat that. So it's a kind of all over the map in answering your question, Mike. Sure. But the industrial heat players that we talked about earlier, in our case, the ones we're engaging with are here in the States. I think as they start to see these other operational benefits that they can get in their projects or in their manufacturing facilities beyond just the cost of the energy, you might see more of an uptick in the US contracting and US building as a result. So a lot of the production of the green hydrogen will happen here. I think still for a while, a lot of the usage is going to happen offshore. Where's China in all this? I mean, China has become a leader in wind and solar, both in part due to their own industrial policy. Are they leaning into green hydrogen or are they sitting this one out so far and saying, let's see what happens. Let's let Europe and America spend their taxpayers' money and then we'll, we'll be fast followers if it turns out to be promising. They are certainly leaning in. It's been interesting to watch the dynamic between wind and solar in China because 
wind is primarily an internal market for China. They haven't really sold their wind turbine generator equipment very much in the US. And I can't think of any large Chinese owner operators of wind farms here in the States. Whereas a lot of the solar module production that's taken place in China uh, has been directed to the US market. And there are some Chinese owner operators here. So some people ask, well, will electrolyzers go more the wind route or the, or the solar route? We're betting wind. First of all, a lot of the electrolyzers, uh, there, there's a lot of electrolyzer manufacturing that's getting started in China now. We've received some quotes ourselves recently from some Chinese vendors at incredibly attractive prices. I won't comment on where those machines stack up in terms of efficiency or quality or the guarantees that the vendors are willing to put forth behind that equipment. But it still, in our case, hasn't been enough to kind of turn us off the scent of some of the other markets uh, where we do plan to buy our electrolyzer equipment. So assuming some other developers will have a similar reaction to ours, I wouldn't be surprised if you ended up having a lot of electrolyzers produced in China and used in China, as opposed to those kind of landing in this market. But we'll see. Yeah, super interesting. Back to Ambient Fuels and your business model. I saw that Generate Capital recently invested $250 million in your business, which seems impressive to me. I don't know if that's a big number to you, having been in the energy sector for a long time. There's lots of zeros in the energy sector. Oh, it's quite large. We're very, very thankful and we're having a great experience with our Generate partners so far. Great. So talk a little bit, if you would, about what the financing space looks like for companies like yours. Yeah. And, and I'll go back to a little bit of kind of what does it mean to build a DevCo? Because I kind of described the individual project development process earlier. Now imagine a company with a portfolio of those projects under development at various stages. Clearly a project that's at an earlier stage, that's maybe feasibility, mostly desktop, very little dollars have to go into that. But as projects get more serious and they need heavy engineering studies and interconnection studies and permitting studies and lots of legal, these start to be you know six and seven figure checks pretty quickly. And then you have to put over top of that the cost to maintain the platform. So the exceptional people, the systems and the software, people flying around and marketing costs. So our kind of mantra as developers is to advance the project as much as you can de-risk it as much as you can on as little capital as possible on the route to kind of getting that commercial outcome and then maintaining your corporate costs in check, not going crazy until you have a certain number of projects sort of rolling off the assembly line as it were. And in that regard, our relationship with Generate is super. They have a very strong appetite for their capital to go into our electrolyzer assets as they roll off the assembly line, but they're terrific supporters and champions of us in all that kind of corporate and project development effort as well. And are they helping to connect you to other parts of the ecosystem as well, given their connections that they have through this market? Very much so. Just to say a quick word on some of the uh, hydrogen derivatives, we're not only making a pure stream of green hydrogen, but in some instances, we will partner with a technology company to help us make sustainable aviation fuel or green methanol or green ammonia. And uh, especially in the instances of, of these e-fuels, often they require a, a CO2 input. And so a number of the generate portfolio companies produce a biogenic form of CO2 uh, where we have opportunities to partner. There are other companies in the generate family that produce the renewable power that we need. So we're able to tap that resource. 
But honestly, probably the best of all has been the terrific team at Generate and then also kind of the terrific teams at these sister companies. They're people to brainstorm with. They're people to get ideas and connections from. I know we haven't gotten to this point yet, Mike, but for those of your listeners who are thinking about starting their own DevCo one day, definitely make sure that if you bring in a, a capital partner, they're true value add. They're the type who like to roll up their sleeves uh, and help you advance your business. So let's talk about that for just a minute. And then I do want to ask you more broadly for advice since you're, we're, we're tipping into that. How would one know how to distinguish that? It's a really good question. Not to pick on the bulge bracket, private equity and, and infrastructure firms, but there's probably a better chance of finding generalists when you work with folks in those companies, or maybe people who've spent most of their career doing energy deals broadly, for example, that's still pretty broad. You know, what we love about the partners who we've selected and generate, uh, and also our seed round partners, which was led by SJF Ventures, in both instances, they have experience with this kind of company in this sector doing things that are, you know, very analogous to what we're trying to do. Particularly in our case, we found investors who appreciate the idea of kind of swimming into a new market that hasn't even really been created yet, where the rules are still being written and where they have comfort with that from the get-go. Just give you some recent examples from our business of where that value add can come in. We're trying to figure out how to optimize the use of the tax credits and tax losses that we will have in our projects. Well, our partners at Generate have been involved in lots of that in companies that are in other industries, but where a tax credit is a tax credit and a tax loss is a tax loss. So we can get access to their experts to really help us optimize that in our business. And I just would caution folks to, you know, bring your actual challenges to the investors you're considering and ask them how they'd handle it. See if they have a good answer. Yeah. I think folks who haven't dealt with startup and startup funding underestimate, just because they don't know yet, the value add beyond the funding that these companies provide in terms of advice and connections. So I think you're reinforcing that insight. If I can say another word, because I was one of the fortunate or unfortunate, one of the, one of the first developers to sort of access venture capital markets with my first company. And what I've found over the years is sometimes entrepreneurs, game is the wrong word, but yeah, play a game to some degree of just trying to get the highest valuation and they think that's sort of the pathway to success. Oh, I you know only had to sell this amount of my company and I got all this capital. Guess what? If it's just capital, if you're not really expecting to see any value add, that dynamic is likely to come back and bite you in the rear. Mm. And I would trade a little bit of valuation in exchange for a real value add investor seven days a week because that's what you're going to be working in either scenario. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, great. So let's turn to my final question, which is about career advice. So who's thinking about getting into this space, whether it be green hydrogen in particular or the other portions of renewables that you've worked in, what advice do you have for them? You've worked yourself for from the banking side, from the development side. Where do you think the most promising opportunities lie? And what advice do you have for people to sort of suss them out or educate themselves about them? So let me take those serially. In terms of how to sort of suss out the best opportunities, I think especially folks who go to business school like to think that there's a framework or a model that can get you the answer to anything. And I think too often don't rely on their own gut and their own instinct. You can do that to your detriment. Don't sort of follow the masses, you know, into the kind of the next thing. But if you're out there in the field working on a deal or working on a consulting project or working your way up through a big corporate, 
and you spot an opportunity, just because people in that company may not support you chasing that thing at that time, doesn't mean it's not a good opportunity. And so really be on the lookout, trust your gut, because you'll you'll have the analytical capability to go get the research, do the analysis, and figure out if it's a real opportunity. I would say my broad advice is follow your gut a lot more than most people probably do. In terms of career advice, I ended up, admittedly, at first by luck, in the power development sector. I guess luck comes to the well-prepared. So I had put myself in Spain, gotten you know financial training, so that when I got in front of somebody who had the ability to give me a job, they could see that I had the ability to handle it. So maybe a combination, but mostly luck. And then just stuck with it. That would be my other piece of advice is you can develop kind of a unique or unusual skill set, then in the early years, you may sometimes question like, do I want to be this pigeonhole? Do I want to just be good at this narrow thing? But you'll find that over time, if you really, if your instinct was right in going into that area, combined with sticking with that narrow set of skills and know-how and experience that you're building up, in my case, I'm now 20-something years into the renewables development industry, and holy smokes, People like trust me to not do dumb things anymore <laughs> as I once did because I've been through it all. Really stick with it, I guess would be my my line there. Well, Jacob, it's been a, a wonderful wide-ranging conversation. It's been a terrific introduction to both uh, project and infrastructure development in the green hydrogen space and it's a lot of promising applications and, and not so promising applications. So really appreciate you spending time with us here on Climate Rising. Really enjoyed it, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. That was my conversation with Jacob Sussman. CEO and co-founder of Ambient Fuels. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. You've been listening to Climate Rising. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Lynn Schenk is our producer, and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.